I've listened to the band by the band for years. And I listened to it once yesterday. Welcome to Spin It, the Thanksgiving episode. Gobble, gobble. everybody and welcome back to spin it the record ranking podcast for people who would rather be listening to music i'm james and with me as always almost always as usual is connor i am a turkey bird no i live no! a turkey life <laughs> this is not it Got is a thanksgiving episode turkey kids a little turkey life and as is the Thanksgiving tradition on Spin It, we have to hear Connor <laughs> sing that song once every year. <laughs> yeah, this is a Thanksgiving episode. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Turkey Day to all you people in America celebrating Thanksgiving. All you people in Canada who did Thanksgiving a while ago, happy post-Thanksgiving. And to all you turkeys in America, I'm sorry. Yeah, sorry turkeys. If you're listening to this and you're a turkey, that's rough. Maybe don't be so delicious next time and we won't eat you. Yeah, tastes worse. Yeah. <laughs> I've been eyeing up the band for a Thanksgiving episode for a long time, and there's a couple reasons for that, and it's, believe it or not, not just because there's a song about King Harvest on this album, (laughs) although that is no small part of the reason why I picked the band. Do you know anything about the band? You know, the, the band, the band? Can't say that I do. Good. That means this could be a fun episode. I'm not saying that I don't. I'm just saying that I can't say it. You can't say. Oh, right. They have me under a gag order. I know too much. I don't believe that. That's good, because that means I'm doing my job right. They want you to... That's what they want me to think? Yeah. Sure. Well, we've talked about the band before on this very podcast. They've come up. Whoa. Uh-huh. On episode 61, when we talked about Bob Dylan, we necessarily talked about the band because they, for a while, were Bob Dylan's backing band. Oh, I did know that. So that part's not covered by the gag order. You could say that. Well, now that you've told it to me, either way, I know, everybody knows I know it now, so it's kind of like up for grabs. Oh, <laughs> sure. Well, the band is a Canadian-American Americana band because there's no such thing as Canadiacana music. They had to do the next best thing, which is Americana. Americana just works so perfectly. I guess it's kind of hard to do that with anything else. Canadonna? Canadonna? That sounds like prima donna. Yeah, it does. I was thinking the same thing. Canadonica. Canadia. That's not bad. Candonica? Yeah, I think it's smart that they just went with Americana. <laughs> I, think, I think they made the right choice. You know, even though they're Canadian... They got together in Toronto, Ontario in 1967, and the original lineup of the band consists of some legendary names that you ought to know. Those names include Rick Danko on the bass, the guitar, the vocals, and the fiddle, Garth Hudson on the organ, the keyboards, the accordion, and the saxophone, of all things. Richard Manuel plays the piano, the drums, and he sings. Robbie Robertson played guitar, vocals, and he was the band's primary songwriter in most cases. And Levon Helm, who was the lone American in the lineup, he played the drums, he sang, he played the mandolin, he played the guitar. That is the band. If you thought you knew other bands, I mean, maybe you did, but this is the band. This is the one. The one. The only. The band. (laughs) Heck yeah. They started out their musical journey together back in the late 50s, actually, a long, long time ago, as a band called The Hawks, backing local rockabilly artist Ronnie Hawkins. 
Get it? Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks? I don't get it. Well, it's because his last name is Hawkins, and a hawk is most of the word that makes up his last name. Why didn't they go by the ends? I don't know, but that's actually a pretty good band name, <laughs> isn't it? I mean, like... Is it? Yeah, like the ins and the outs, but like just the ends. Because we ain't out. Yeah. We may be down, but we ain't out. Yeah, but we're not even down. We're unstoppable. Yeah. But yeah, <laughs> when they started playing with Ronnie Hawkins, it was like one by one members would join because what Ronnie would do is he would scalp the best players from other local competition other bands would play and he'd go oh who's that guitarist i like him what'd you say robbie robertson yeah i want him and he would go reach out to robbie robertson and say join my band instead and he'd be like okay and that's how he compiled this band just stealing people wild i know most of the time it was pretty easy to convince them to join the dark side because who wouldn't want to play in a local super group like that you know like, why wouldn't you want to be with the best musicians in town? But actually, Garth Hudson was a tough get because he was a trained musician with a degree. His ambitions were to teach music and to play live a little bit on the side. But they loved, loved, loved his organ playing and they needed him so badly. They wanted him so much that he was able to negotiate his own terms. And he said, here's what I want. I want $10 a week from every member of the band and I will teach you music theory. I'll train you on how to play better. You'll learn a lot. It will require $10 from each of you every week. And also, you have to buy me a new organ. <laughs> and they did. They shelled out. And he started teaching them. Crazy stuff. Yeah, he became the music theory expert of the group. And he kind of took them under his wing as they learned. Before long, the band was one of the biggest groups in Toronto. And tension started to mount with Ronnie Hawkins. Night after night, he was kind of doing the same gig, playing the same show. And they never got to play any of their original stuff that they'd been experimenting with and writing. And he also was a little bit of a tyrant. Ronnie Hawkins would, like, fine them if they invited girls to their shows because, you know, he wanted more eligible people there for him. So if they brought their girlfriends, he's like, you got to pay extra for that. Whoa. I know, right? And he also kept really close tabs on their personal habits. They just did not love it. So in 1963, they decided to part ways leaving Ronnie Hawkins without a backing band. <laughs> Your whole band just kind of goes on strike and quits. Tough. They tried to do a little bit of solo stuff under new names, including the Canadian Squires or the Levon Helm Sextet. Both very interesting options. <laughs> None of them as catchy or, or enduring as the band. But in 1965, everything changed for them. Like I mentioned, you know, episode 61, we talked about them. Bob Dylan hires the band to be his touring band in 1965 and 66. That is huge for them as they get really close to this icon in the folk music world, right? Unprecedented access to him. Heck yeah. They grow their audience a ton. Bob Dylan would have a huge influence on them. His fingerprints would be very, very visible on a lot of their work. They'd have no trouble getting a conviction for the crime of helping kickstart the band's career. That's right. The fingerprints, the forensic evidence was everywhere. Bob Dylan was all over it. So much so, in fact, that the cover art for their first album, Music from Big Pink, it's Bob Dylan's painting that they put on the cover. It's not a very good painting. Dang. we got a, It's not. Sorry, Bob. We got an art judge over here. Well. Art critic. I'm not saying I could do any better. Far be it from me to say that. I'm just saying. You're not the one that slapped it on an album either. So No, know. that's true. You know your limits. Yeah, <laughs> right. But, you know, even when they were touring with Bob Dylan, it wasn't all sunshine and roses. On the tour, there were a lot of drugs 
drugs, specifically amphetamines, flying around. And you might remember that in 1965, Dylan had made the very controversial decision to go electric, and he made a lot, a lot of people in the folk world very upset. So these concerts in 1965 and 66, they got pretty hard. They were heckled a lot, tons of bad reception. It was so bad that Helm walked off the tour after just a month of playing. He's like, I can't do this anymore, and he left. Dylan tried to use the band as a studio band, you know, instead of just a live band, but progress on recording was kind of slow, and it just wasn't clicking for the most part. They weren't quite on the same page, so he didn't ever really use them for recordings, but he did, however, get some mileage out of Rick Danko and Robbie Robertson on his iconic double album, Blonde on Blonde. They both have credits on that. Nice. Yeah, real nice. Bob Dylan, though, gets into a motorcycle accident in the summer of 1966, which I don't think we talked about in our episode, but he holds up in upstate New York. He settles down for a bit, can't get out, can't go anywhere, but he wants the band close to him. So they rent a house that they decided to call Big Pink, where they lived for several months. And while they were living together, they were writing songs together, you know? It was a big time of recording demos and songwriting, and out of that came one of the most beloved and important Americana albums of all time, Music from Big Pink, so-called because it was the music they made in Big Pink, the house. Bob Dylan actually had co-written three of the songs, and it included their now pretty ubiquitous hit, The Wait, and I Shall Be Released. Do you know either of those songs? Not by title. Doesn't mean I wouldn't know it if I heard it. Okay. The Wait is a song that absolutely had like a Lil Wayne effect for me. Like, I hadn't heard of it, and then I listened to music from Big Pink. Suddenly, The Wait was and has been everywhere in my life. Like, since that day. Wow. It couldn't wait for you to recognize it. No, the wrong Wait. W-E-I-G-H-T. Oh. It's a pretty heavy accusation you just left. Oh, oh, I got it. 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 Oh, okay. It couldn't wait for you to notice. <laughs> no. <laughs> I said it different this time. I said it spelled the right way. Oh, right. I could hear the difference. Yeah, I did. The GHT really shone through. Yeah. Big Pink, the album, is big enough that they're basically a standalone band now. They never evolved into a name after being billed as Bob Dylan and the band. So take away Bob Dylan and you're left with the band. And it stuck. Well. Yeah. They got to play at Woodstock in 1969. And then they headed out to Los Angeles to make their symbolic, self-titled second record. The one we're doing. That's right. Now we're going to learn a little bit about the band. And that is about the album, the band, not the band, the band. So they're out in Los Angeles. And they said, you know, what we did with that first album was really great. Let's do it again. Let's stick to the formula. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. So they rent a house. They get to work in the pool house of a home that used to be owned by Sammy Davis Jr. And before that, actually, Judy Garland owned it. They wanted it to feel a lot like their first set of demos, which they called the basement tapes. They called it a clubhouse concept because they just were hanging out in a clubhouse. Mickey Mouse style? Not Mickey Mouse style. No, probably more like Robbie Robertson style. It's the Mickey Mouse clubhouse. Come inside. We've got turkey inside because it's Thanksgiving with the mouse. <laughs> At least it's not Doug. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Nine out of the 12 songs from their record were finished there. The other three songs happened in New York City. Producer John Simon worked extensively with them on the band, self-titled album, much like he did on Big Pink. And he also started to impart his knowledge to Robbie Robertson. He said, I'm going to teach you how to produce. And so when it came time for their next record, Stage Fright, the band actually would take over all the production themselves. The band 
officially came out on September 22nd, 1969, and it's their very own style of genre-blended folk music. There are little traces of all different kinds of styles in there. People sometimes call the band a concept record. The king will give his ruling. The concept king will give his ruling. (laughs) Sure. Well... I kind of can understand either way, you know, because the album has all these themes and these characters that are super reminiscent of old America. Very, very deep roots. Like some of these songs call back to the Civil War, to the Great Depression and Dust Bowl type stuff. You know, it's it's almost like Woody Guthrie-esque in some spots. And so I could understand, I'd entertain the argument that it's a concept album. It sure listens like one, I think, to put it on cover to cover. But the king will pass judgment, I suppose. I, I will decree. Yeah. It's one of the best parts about being a king, is having the ability to decree things. The decrees? Yeah. I'm, I just, I'm just a king for all the decrees. Makes sense. Well, the album was a pretty big hit with fans and critics alike, while it never quite eclipsed their iconic debut... I really do think this album stands pretty well on its own merits. The band peaked at number 9 on the Billboard Pop Albums chart in America, and actually it would go on to be their highest ever charting album in their home country of Canada at number 2. When it came out, music critic Robert Christgau, who already was not a fan of Big Pink, just didn't love it, he listened to this expecting to hate it. He took one listen and he decided that it was better than Abbey Road. (laughs) which had come out only four days after the band. Whoa. I know, that's pretty high praise. I don't know if it holds up. I don't know if he still believed that in time. And I don't think it's true, certainly. But, I mean, wow. (laughs) What a milestone opinion. But its popularity has held up to the test of time. In 2003, Rolling Stone put the band at number 245 on its greatest albums of all time list. And in 2000, it peaked at number 10 on Billboard's Internet Albums chart. Which is hilarious to me because that could not have even been conceived of at the time they made the record. Yeah. Internet? Albums? What's that? You know? But they made it to number 10. Their self-titled sophomore album had sent the band on a huge tour, their first as a headlining act, and their work started to evolve yet again with their third record, Stage Fright. In total, over the course of their career, the band would release seven records and a live album between 1968 and 1977, but touring kind of started to become a chore. After their first couple records, their popularity started to wane a little bit, started to hit a decline. They were either, you know, headlining in smaller venues, secondary markets, or they were, like, relegated to opening acts altogether. At one point, they opened for ZZ Top in Nashville, actually. Fun fact. But they said, you know what? It's getting tiring. We're done with shows. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to throw one giant party, and then we're going to quit. We're going to hang it up. That giant party was the infamous Last Waltz. Have you heard of the Last Waltz? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I've heard of the term the Last Waltz, but in terms of what you're talking about, probably not. Okay. Well, the Last Waltz, it's a legendary show. Think about, like, how many individual shows do people actually know? Right? There are a few famous ones. Yeah. Like Bob Dylan going electric at the Newport Folk Festival. Like the initial Woodstock. Like the Rolling Stones at Altamont. Hendrix at the Monterey Pop Festival. The Beatles on the Apple Rooftop. And the last waltz by the band. It's right up there with the best of them. I've heard so many stories about the show. I've been to tribute performances of this show. 
I mean, it's iconic. Wild. It's wild. And this is one of the reasons, too, that I picked the band for a Thanksgiving episode because of The Last Waltz. The Last Waltz happened on Thanksgiving Day in 1976 in San Francisco's Winterland Ballroom. It featured more than a dozen special guests, including some of the band's biggest influences, like Ronnie Hawkins and Bob Dylan. Plus, it featured guest musicians like Eric Clapton, Emmy Lou Harris, Neil Diamond, Ringo Starr, Joni Mitchell, Van Morrison, Dr. John, Muddy Waters, Neil Young, and a ton more. And their former producer, John Simon, even returned as their musical director. The night started out with them hosting... <laughs> a massive Thanksgiving Day turkey dinner for the 5,000 people in attendance. It took more than 200 turkeys and 300 pounds of salmon and 1,000 pounds of potatoes. That's a half ton of potatoes. I mean, that's even more pounds of turkey. (laughs) You're right. That's true. I mean, I just looked it up. The average turkey weight is anywhere between 7 and 30 pounds. So even if you go with the smallest of 7. Probably a ton. Probably a literal ton of turkey. Yeah. It's impressive. So happy Thanksgiving to the band. And then after the dinner was over, they took the stage. They played from 9 p.m. until after 2 a.m. with a set list that included something like 45 songs. It also had some spoken word poetry and two really massive jam sessions. And they had the good sense to bring cameras and to film it. Martin Scorsese and Bill Graham worked together to turn the show into a documentary that was released in 1978. It was shot on seven 35mm cameras, which is an absurd number of cameras. There's five people in the band. Yeah. And they've got seven cameras at this show. Oh, man. The documentary features performances from the show. It features soundstage footage and interviews from the band. Really, it's like one of the best concert films ever made. It has a 98% on Rotten Tomatoes. And in 2019, the Last Waltz documentary made it into the Library of Congress. It actually also fostered a lasting collaborative spirit between Martin Scorsese and Robbie Robertson. Robertson went on to contribute music to other big films like Raging Bull, Shutter Island, The Departed, Casino, Gangs of New York, and more. So if you've seen any Scorsese movies... You've probably heard some Robbie Robertson music already. I I definitely have. I've seen several of those movies. I've seen Raging Bull, but I don't remember it. And of course, this is rock music in the 70s. Drugs were still pretty prevalent to the point where they had to edit out cocaine on Neil Young's nose in post. Oh, dang. I know. It was there and they were like, ooh, let's touch that up. Uh, That's kind of the vibe of the whole show, you know, fast and loose like that. The Last Waltz was indeed the last time the band took the stage with the classic lineup, and The Last Waltz was the end of the band for a while. In 1983, they put together some pieces of the group, but Robbie Robertson was conspicuously absent. They replaced him with Jim Wider on guitar, and once again, they were openers on tour for groups like The Grateful Dead and Crosby, Stills, and Nash, but it was still hard. After struggling with alcoholism and drug abuse, Rick Manuel died by suicide in 1986. Things just weren't clicking for the remaining members. They would put out three more studio albums between 1993 and 1998, and that was kind of it. Members of the original band have reunited for appearances and for performances from time to time, but their recording career was largely finished. Rick Danko passed away in 1999 after an episode of Heart Failure. Levon Helm passed away in 2012 after a battle with cancer. And then more recently, Robbie Robertson passed away at the age of 80 on August 9th, 2023. Like this year? Yeah, this year. Garth Hudson is the last living member of the original five-man lineup of the band. But that's the long and short of it. You know, the band's impact on music 
not just Americana, but popular music in general, was like immense given the length of their career. And honestly, I think a little understated. I think they made a very quiet but powerful impression on music. You don't hear people talk about the band a lot, especially outside of Americana circles. But I mean, just like Bob Dylan's fingerprint was all over them, I feel like their fingerprint is here in a lot of places. They've been claimed as influences and inspiration by everyone from George Harrison to Elton John to Led Zeppelin to Fish to Pink Floyd. And in fact, their big pink record is what inspired Eric Clapton to leave the band Cream. He said it changed his life. That's pretty huge. Pretty huge. Mm-hmm. They earned a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award in 2008, and they're in the Canadian Music and Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, as well as on Canada's Walk of Fame. Rolling Stone put the band at number 50 on their 100 Greatest Artists of All Time list, and, of course, some members also pursued pretty successful solo careers and earned some Grammys, some various other awards. I've talked for a while. We won't get into it. Let's see what the mixtapers got this happy turkey day. What factor spin wonders await us? Will there be gravy? Will there be cranberry sauce? Will there be mashed potatoes? Who knows? Hey, it's me, the mixtaper. Hi, mixtaper. How you doing? Oh, you. I'm tired. You really made me work for it this week. Yeah, what do you mean? I had to dig and dig and dig to find information you didn't ramble about in the first part of this episode. Hey, I like the band. I know what I know, and I like the band. Yeah, and you, of course, did all this on the like most impossible band to research in the history of bands. Oh, you mean searching the band facts didn't give you facts about the band? I'm shocked. At least maybe you can include the album title, you know? Like the band, the band. Yeah, yeah, the band. <laughs> well, what'd you do? How'd you how'd you work around that? I had to dig deep into the individual band members and you still had a lot of juicy details about the band members in your freaking rundown so <laughs> I had to dig quite deep. <laughs> That's exciting but that means we're getting like deep cut facts that maybe yeah. even band fans don't know. Maybe we'll find out. Start with our first one. All right I'm gonna gobble it up. We're doing too much Thanksgiving. The band was almost trampled. Trampling. Oh, that sounds intense. Trampled by what? People feet? Animal feet. Animal feet. What kind of animal feet? Hooves? Pause. It's time to play everybody's new favorite game show, Guess That Animal Feet. Oh, great. <laughs> well, the, my question still stands. Hooves or paws? Hooves? I'm going to go with hooves. I don't think it's hooves. I don't, it's not hooves. And I don't think it's paws. I'm going to go with neither. Neither? I think it's just feet. Just feet. <laughs> what kind of animal just has... Okay, do I get to go like mammal, fish, bird, reptile? Mammal. Okay, a mammal with feet, but not people feet. Not people feet, no. Now I'm really confused. I mean, my brain's just drawing a blank on mammals that don't have hooves and have feet. Monkeys? No. Well, it's hard to get trampled by monkeys. Well, let me let me, let me me double check. Well, those have paws though, right? I don't know. Would you consider them paws? Mo yeah, I would it's say called a monkey a monkey's paw. paw. Yeah, monkey paw. Yeah. Yeah. You would not call this a paw, nor would you call this a hoof. So is it like a like a webbed foot then? Is this like a beaver or platypus? No, no. <laughs> I don't know. It's a scientific name. Oh, wait, no, that's a plant. Never mind. It's a plant? What? <laughs> I typed in blank feet for, you know, which animal it is. And I was like, like what do you call that? And it came up with a uh, plant by the same name. <laughs> really? Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> 
I'm torn. I need a little more detail about the animal, I guess, that's not foot-related. Big animal, bunch of small animals. Well, the plant is called a ponytail palm. Okay. Their feet are shaped in a strange, almost prehistoric-looking way with their stocky, stumpy build and large, hard toenails. Are you talking about, like, a rhino? You're getting close, yeah. <laughs> like a hippo? No. Like a mammal native to, like, Africa? Yeah, yeah, you're really close with rhino. I mean, what's, like, usually right next to the rhinos in the zoo? Are you talking about, like, elephants? An elephant! Elephant's foot. You're telling me the band was almost trampled by elephants? Well, by an elephant, but yeah. Well, right. You're also correct. That's not a hoof, nor is it a paw. That's what I thought, right? You'd absolutely say, like, an elephant's foot. You wouldn't say, like, a paw or a hoof. It's a foot. Yeah. yeah. So what are they doing near an elephant? Parading with it. Oh, no. So they're in a parade with an elephant. Sure are. It starts running, takes off. It doesn't really take off, but it, like, rears back and starts stomping around, and they are, like, struggling to control it. They, who's struggling to control it? The the animal control. Okay. It's not Okay. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Just making sure. What kind of parade is this? What what's this celebrating? Now I need you to hear me out here. Okay. Because you're gonna hear this and immediately think spin, but I want you to keep an open mind. It's okay, okay if you still come to spin. I just want you to keep an open mind. I'll keep an open mind. Great. It's the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That is that is a toughie. So they're performing in the parade. The elephants near them in the lineup. Are they on a float? Are they on foot? They're on foot between the elephants and Little Miss Tuffet. Uh, Little Miss Muffet. Right. She Sour sits on the Tuffet. Yeah. What even is? Anyway, it's neither here nor there. Yeah. Does anyone get hurt by the elephant? How do they get it back under control? The animal handlers are good at their job, I guess. Yeah, nobody's hurt. They they handled the animal. When? What year is this? 1969. Oh, like the year from the album. Oh, is that the year from the album? Yes, it is. I wasn't listening earlier. <laughs> that's okay. I know Connor was, and that's all that matters. Yeah. Yeah, Connor was. 1969. I'm going to say this is a spin. Still going with spin. Okay. But did you keep an open mind or did you have you been on spin the whole time since I said Thanksgiving Day Parade? I kept an open mind. I think this is just a spin. Okay. Okay. That's all I ask. Maybe they were even at the parade with an elephant because why not? I guess it was a different time back then. You just don't think they got trampled or almost trampled? I think the odds that they were near this elephant and that they were almost trampled, like that feels iffy. Maybe there was an elephant at the end. And this is a Thanksgiving episode. This is about the Thanksgiving Day Parade. Well, and that's why I said you would immediately think spin when I said oh, Thanksgiving well, Day Parade. That's why I said keep an open mind. I hadn't even considered it at the time. But also, oh. yeah, that definitely does make me lean towards spin. Yeah, you see, that's why I was like, keep an open mind. Well, <laughs> my mind is closed. I think this is not true. Should have kept it open because this is a true spin. Oh, see, that, that's, not, <laughs> that's starting to not even fool me anymore when you do something like that. Oh. Oh, man. I'm getting predictable. Maybe. I sure hope so, anyway. That makes my job easier. So what's the origin of this? This was a fan recommendation to lie about them being in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. But I was like, if I just go that route, it's going to be way obvious spin. So I was like, let's spice it up a little bit. Really focus in on something that's not really what the parade was. I was almost kind of thinking you weren't even going to ask what the parade was for. And I was going to be able to get away with it just being trampled in a random parade. But that, your last question really dug me in. I was like, ah. Yeah. Has there ever been an elephant in the Thanksgiving Day Parade? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade is almost 100 years old as of 
2023. So yeah, almost 100 years old. That's pretty wild. It started in 1924. So next year is its 100th anniversary. Whoa. It used to be an addition to floats with nursery run characters like Mother Goose and Little Miss Muffet. The parade also included real bears, monkeys, elephants, and other animals on loan from the Central Park Zoo. Wow. And in 1927, though, a couple years in, they replaced the animals with the giant balloon characters that we've all come to know and love because children were frightened by the growls of the bears and monkeys. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Would you rather see, like, giant cartoonish balloons flying down the street of all your favorite things, or would you rather have bears walking around the city? Yeah. I mean, mean... picture this. Giant cartoonish bears. Oh, yeah, but that still requires you to not use actual bears says who that's interesting that's really fun what a fun little fact it is fun it's also it's interesting to me that they stopped in 1927 like back before people started getting all up in arms about the treatment of animals in circuses and events like that it seems like they were kind of ahead of their time yeah well i gobbled that first one now for seconds robbie robertson what a great name by the way we didn't talk about it but robbie robertson 10 out of 10 he was a carny a carny you say what did he do he worked two different jobs at two different points in his life well what's the first point in his life in the first job it was part of a traveling carnival circus that came through a suburb of toronto and he just kind of worked odd jobs at the traveling circus oh so the circus came through and like temp hired him yeah okay for like the so the circus was like there for the summer or whatever whoa <laughs> A summer circus. This is interesting because I just mentioned how the last fact was like, I brought circuses up. Wow. Yeah. Keep an open mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I was just starting to, the doubt was starting to creep in a little bit. <laughs> hey, what a coincidence. So what's he doing at the first festival? Just like sweeping, picking up trash. Is he like a, a barker for some games? Is he the world's bearded man? Yeah, I, I think he helped run some of the games. That's fun. Well, tell me about the second time. Okay, read my mind. He was an assistant at the Freak Show for three weeks during the Canadian National Exhibition Carnival. He's like the guy taking tickets, right? He's not in there. Yeah, or you know the person, the person helping get the the lizard boy ready or whatever. You know, the dog boy, the dog boy, right? Isn't usually dog. I don't know. He's just behind the scenes. Sure. Is this a thing that he like enjoyed and sought out and was really excited about? I mean, he didn't keep doing it, so I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess a summer job is a summer job. Uh, yeah, a good good work. Ooh, this is tough. I like this because the band's third album, Stage Fright, it feels a little circusy. Mm. It's got a little more of that pep and energy and just like style to it a little bit that I could see, like, if that's his experience, I could see him incorporating that into his songwriting style. But... There's a but. There's a big old but. I did just mention circuses. (laughs) Keep it open mind. (laughs) I did. I did just say it. No! (laughs) I think this is a fact. I think this one's true. He thinks it was a coincidence. Well, if you're a traveling circus, you've got a lot of stuff to haul around, and probably you want to keep the people you're traveling with to a minimum, so hiring local does kind of make sense you know local and seasonal yep yep i'm sure that could be a thing twice is the interesting part but (laughs) but if he's got experience you know maybe he had connections and they invited him back because he was so good at it i don't know yeah i'll lock in fact this is a spin 
Oh, I... That's actually a fact. I got him! You're fooled, sucker! <laughs> wait, wait, so, so that is true? Yeah, it's a true fact. Okay, yeah. I didn't see right. that coming. I really did. That was confusing. To get for saying I was getting predictable. Yeah, I guess. He was a carny twice. That's cool. Yeah. I really thought that it was totally... I mean, I was half convinced that you did just make it up on the spot after complaining about how I found so many of the facts already. And then I just mentioned circuses. But maybe you put the elephant in the first spin because you wanted me to think of circuses and mention it. I do oh. not have that much pre-thought. Oh, I'm playing I'm playing 4D chess and you're over here moving your checkers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, it worked out for me this time. I need something for the thirds. Uh, we, we gobbled the first fact. I had my seconds on the second fact. Time for my thirds. <laughs> No, I don't know. I can feel the tryptophan kicking in, but like try, like three, like trip, trip to, I know it's not spelled that anyway. That one didn't land? No. Oh, here we go. Here we go. I'm going to roll right onto this third fact. Oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah. The band spent the equivalent of $75,000 on pie. On pie. Oh, dear. That's very Thanksgiving-y. Yeah, especially when I tell you, uh. What kind of pie? Keep an open mind. <laughs> <laughs> is it pumpkin pie? Sure is. Oh my goodness. That is interesting. Why'd they buy $75,000 in pumpkin pie? Was it, hold on, was it one really, 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 really good pumpkin pie? <laughs> like a lot of okay pumpkin pies. It was a bunch of slices of pumpkin pie. Oh, okay. I mean, they probably got them in whole pies and then the caterers or whatever probably sliced it up. But I mean, they gave it out in slices. Sure. Was this for their last waltz dinner that they did? It was for the last waltz dinner. 75 grand on pie. Well, that is the inflation adjusted dollar amount time to play everybody's oh. second favorite spinning game show guess that dollar amount guess what that was in 1976 dollars i'm bad at it this way i'm i'm good at taking yeah. old money to now a little bit but reversing it doesn't work so there's five thousand people at this shindig right so probably you're buying i don't know what 5500 6 000 slices of pie i'm gonna guess they spent eight thousand dollars on pies Ooh, not as far off as you normally are that's good. Uh, the correct answer, $13,980 spent on pie. $13,000 is still an absurd amount of pie. Yeah, which is, in today's money, I rounded it to seventy five, but it's $75,621.97. Okay, so $13,000 on pie for 5,000 people? Yeah. That's like $3 a slice. A slice? Right? That's not bad. Ish. Yeah. It's not. That's actually, okay. That makes the numbers seem okay. That's actually pretty, pretty cheap. I don't think I could get it for that. <laughs> and they were all pumpkin? Did they mix and match? Yeah, it was pumpkin pie. No, it was pumpkin. I mean, that pumpkin pie is what the story said, so. Okay. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. But it's a big party. Imagine what they spent on the turkeys. <laughs> <laughs> on a literal ton of turkey? I, I, yeah, I can only imagine. I think this one is also a fact. I said keep an open mind. No. Oh, wait, no, you said fact. Wow, wow. Yeah, fact. <laughs> I mean, I know the last waltz was a huge thing. I feel like that's yeah. a, no expense was spared to make this the party of a lifetime kind of thing. Yep. This is... Plus, they had drugs. They were probably all having the munchies. A spin. A real spin? For A real spin. I realize I really ruined all my credibility on the answers there. but Yeah, you maybe did. <laughs> this isn't true. Okay, well, what? how much did they really spend on pie? I don't think they even had pie there. Oh. I just thought that'd be a good food to add to a Thanksgiving meal. Yeah, it would. I had a whole other bit uh, uh, that we didn't really get to that was going to be about how they postponed 
a performance due to a pie shortage. Because really, this is based off of a town that once postponed Thanksgiving because of pumpkin pie. Because there wasn't any? Yeah, in 1705, the town of Colchester, Connecticut, was so dedicated to the dessert that they elected to postpone the holiday because foul weather had interfered with their molasses shipment. Without molasses, they couldn't make pumpkin pie. And without pumpkin pie... I mean, Thanksgiving just wouldn't be the same. It's like the year without a Santa Claus. <laughs> yeah. And so they like literally like voted to move Thanksgiving because they couldn't have their pie. Pretty ungrateful. All right. I've got two facts left. Oh, two facts left? Really? To, that you're going to give or I have to pick one? But only one to give to you. Oh. One is a spin and one is a fact. I'd like you to use the fact. Oh, okay. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> what, do I get to pick though? Yeah, one or two. Let's take number two, and I'm hoping fact number four is all gravy. These are getting worse. Well, I just, I, <laughs> if I get it right, then that's a win for me. And if not, you know, then it's 50-50. Yeah. But if I win, then it's gravy. Garth Hudson knows how to negotiate. For a split second, I thought you were going to say juggle, and I was going to hang up. <laughs> knows how to negotiate what? I mean, just in general. You had all the information about how he negotiated, like, $10. Oh, that's true. <laughs> About how he negotiated to join the super group because he wanted money and an organ. Yeah. What else has he negotiated? He negotiated the writer for the band. Oh, uh oh. And you know how I love a good writer fact. I do. Turns out he's also a bit of a uh, germaphobe. Okay. And so he had two interesting line items in the writers. A brand new toilet seat at every venue that they played at. <laughs> I like that. And to disinfect doorknobs every two hours. That's a little intense. So that's in their writer. Yeah. Why is that taking negotiation? Seems like those are pretty easy things to do. I mean, he's the one that handled it all. And I wanted to tie it back to your really interesting oh. fact that I would have loved to have brought, but you had. Right, about how, yeah, he weaseled his way in, made his demands. Mm-hmm. Germaphobe wants a toilet seat, wants the doorknobs disinfected. This is messing with my head because you said you got two. One's a fact and one's a spin. And now I kind of feel like I'm deal or no deal. Like I'm standing here with my choice (laughs) and I have to choose whether I've got the fact in my fact or whether, you know, the spin is still up on the board somewhere. (laughs) Is the spin with the pretty lady or is the spin with you? Make me an offer, banker. I'll sell you my answer. I'll give you 20 spin nickels. Spin nickels. Okay. I think that's a no deal for me. I'm going to say this is the spin you think this is the spin i think this is the spin any reason why um no okay (laughs) (laughs) i don't know just i i think you doing the negotiate thing to tie it back to my earlier fact is to lend it fact credibility Mm. like oh he's negotiated look at all his negotiating experience like with this and the writer but also I don't know how accurate that would be. You only had the two things, which is not usually your your speed with writers, which is either a good tactic to throw me off or something false. Mm. I mean, it seems to be throwing you off whether it's true or false. So, well, that's true. I think it was just a good tactic, one way or the other. <laughs> right. Well, Howie, open that case. What do I have here? You're locking in spin, right? Yeah, I'm gonna lock in spin. This is. Gonna cost you 20 spin nickels, because this is a spin. It's a spin? There it is. That's the gravy. Really trying to make that work. Yeah, I did. That's not bad. Well, can I know what your other fact was? Yeah. Let me know if I should have regretted my choice. Other fact was that the Butterball Turkey Hotline answers over 100,000 calls a year. (laughs) What? That's not about the band. (laughs) 
I didn't say I had a fact and a spin about the band. I just said I had a fact and I had a, a spin. A fact and a spin. You know what? That's very dastardly. The turkey hotline answers, you say, what, a thousand calls a year? A hundred thousand calls a year. Okay, that's better, but still surprisingly low. Each year, their, their experts talk to over a hundred thousand calls about turkey preparation during November and December. Wait, so if I call a hotline... How many people are there to answer? Do they hire a bunch of temp staff around Thanksgiving and Christmas? Tons. They hire, yeah, yeah, it's a ton. Whoa. I'll have to call just to say hi this year. Will they let me do that? They'd probably hang up on me. Yeah, they probably would. I eat a lot of turkey. Never cooked a turkey. Did you know that the first presidential turkey pardon wasn't related to Thanksgiving? No, the turkey committed a crime, a federal crime, and the president (laughs) wanted to let him off easy. Do you know which president it was? Oh, they did the first turkey pardoning. Oh, we've talked about this. It's really old. Isn't it really old? I don't know. It seems like the kind of thing Nixon would do, Mm. but I feel like it's before Nixon. It is before Nixon. Kind of want to take it all the way back to like Andrew Jackson. Correct answer. Abraham Lincoln. Ah, I went too far. Back in 1863, Abraham Lincoln granted clemency to a live turkey intended for his family's Christmas dinner. So it was a Christmas turkey pardon. Whoa. Not a Thanksgiving turkey pardon. 1863. That's, man, probably the easiest thing he did all year. I think. <laughs> yeah. Did you know that the green bean casserole dish, so famous at Thanksgiving time. Yeah. It was actually invented by Campbell's Soup. Oh, to sell more soup? The recipe was developed by a woman named Dorcas Riley. Great name. So you say you say Dorcas? Shout out to my girl Dorcas. <laughs> if you hate green bean casserole, you know who to blame. It's Dorcas' fault. <laughs> Who worked in the Campbell's Soup Home Economics Department. Originally called Green Bean Bake, the recipe became a sensation when the company began printing it on the labels of their cream of mushroom soup cans. Smart. And lastly... Oh, there's still more facts. Okay. These don't count for you. They absolutely do. Just so we're on the same page. It's a Thanksgiving miracle. <laughs> it's a Thanksgiving miracle. Yeah. No. Uh, all right. Just two of them count. That way we're 50-50. If that's what your mixtape brain needs to cope. Yeah. Minnesota raises the most turkeys. Up or from birth? Because <laughs> if it's just up, I bet we could really take them down. <laughs> yeah. Probably both, honestly. But there's a good chance that uh, the turkey that's arriving on your table came by the way of the North Star State. The state raises more turkeys than anywhere else in the United States. So these were all different Thanksgiving-themed spin ideas from our audience who really, when I put out the call for facts and spins about the band for help, how hard it was to find (laughs) any information worth bringing that you didn't already have, they all just decided independently... Or there's a massive conspiracy, one of the two, to give me Thanksgiving-themed spins. They really came through. Are you sure? Well, what's Thanksgiving-themed? I mean, trampled by an elephant at the Thanksgiving Day Parade is a given. Yeah. Spending all that money on pie is a given. Yeah. I'm going to need you to clarify on working at a carnival. Well, that one was true. Well, that's true. You're right. (laughs) And then negotiating for toilet seats. Well, that's the one I came up with because I couldn't just keep doing Thanksgiving stuff. (laughs) Okay. What? All my spins were Thanksgiving themed except for the one of them. No, I didn't say they were all Thanksgiving themed. I said the audience only gave me Thanksgiving themed spins. To oh, use. okay. I gotcha. I kept an open mind. I really did. I honestly considered just doing an all spins week with all Thanksgiving themed stuff. I was like, he's just going to say spin on them all. That's true. It's like, I don't want to get shut out on the Thanksgiving episode because the audience didn't give me anything. Fair enough. And I had to make up 
the toilet seat one on the fly. I knew too much. Well, mixtaper this Thanksgiving, I'm thankful for you and your facts and spins. Oh, I'm thankful for me too. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, I'll see you next week. That's enough out of you. Yeah. Welcome back, Connor. I'm thankful for you, James. I'm thankful for me too. Oh, man. Get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I heard that from someone else and I had to share it. No one's thankful for me. I'm thankful for you. No, it's too late. It's not organic. Oh, the mixtaper has made me make you sad now. Darn it. Well, while you're sad, let's talk about the album cover. Maybe it'll cheer you up. I doubt it. Okay. The album cover is a nice picture of the band. It was taken in Woodstock, New York. Nice rainy day. And it's framed in brown. Here's a fun fact that I didn't actually know until I was, like, digging for this album. Because it's framed in brown like that, sometimes they just call this the brown album instead of the band. Oh. So when we joked all those times ago about the brown album, it exists. That was Weezer, right? Well, Weezer and then Kendrick Lamar again and then some other one. It's come up a couple times. It has. Looks like somebody turned on the, like, what is that, the sepia filter on uh, Snapchat? Yes, on anything. Yeah. I guarantee they didn't use Snapchat to take this, though. Can you guarantee that, though? 110%. So, yeah, let's talk about all these tracks. Again, people do, like I said, consider this a little bit of a pseudo-concept album about the life and history in the American South. I'll be the judge of that. The concept king will rule, make his ruling and proclamation at the end of the episode. That's right. I shall proclaim. Yes. And up first is Across the Great Divide. Vocals by Manuel, written by Robertson. The Great Divide, as a term, history term, refers to the mass migration to the West that took place back in the day across the actual physical continental divide. But it's also a conflict in the relationship of these characters. It's a metaphor. The speaker's confronting his wife, Molly, who's brandishing a gun, threatening him unless he gets out. He's begging for understanding and compassion. Tell me, hun, what you've done with the gun. And of course he does get out. He leaves and heads west across the actual Great Divide himself. I love that parallelism. It's very fun. What do you think of Across the Great Divide? Any expectations? Very catchy. Very catchy. Good. It's true. And I don't even think it's the most catchy song on this album. But there is just something about that chorus. Grab your hat, you take that ride. And the instrumentals. Yeah, I think a lot of that has to do with that piano that's constantly going. For me, it was... I thought I had noticed the guitar a lot on this one. And then the horns that come in towards the 150 mark. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> Almost like, what is that, a trombone part? Yep, yep. It's definitely a trombone. That's what I thought. And there are horns throughout, too. I mean, the big intro starts with horns, too. Yeah. But I actually, the that the guitar does in the chorus every time, every time I hear it, I'm like, yes. <laughs> yeah, I think the song sets the tone of the album perfectly. We get a fun story with characters. We get cool instrumentals. We get sing-alongable stuff. But there's, like, a lot of emotion in this song that's kind of silly, too. You know, there's a lot of tension and conflict, and it has its moments. But there's also, like, a lot of cool imagery, like this one-horse town and the Harvest Moon feeding your man chicken every Sunday. Like, it's a very in-depth story that they tell in just a couple minutes. Less than three minutes, actually. I love Across the Great Divide. It is such a strong track. Such a good opener. But you know what I like more? Rag Mama Rag. You like Rag Mama Rag more than Great Divide. I do. Interesting. <laughs> it's kind of hard to put my finger on why. Something maybe with like the violins, the fiddle part. I mean, this one, the piano goes hard. It does. 
And I also like this one sung by Levon Helm. I really like the way he sings it. There are like so many parts where he just puts a lot of emotion in it. You know, you could just tell they're having fun playing this song that shines through in a way that it just can't on a song like Across the Great Divide. Sure. Rag Mama Rag is like a dance song. They're just partying. I like the uh, strings on this one. Yeah. Fiddles are fiddling. Yeah. Love a good fiddle. Underrepresented instrument. It's true. And I mean, on top of the fiddling fiddles, the electric guitar does a great job on this song too in filling in a lot of gaps and like knowing its place. And fun fact, here's my favorite fun fact about Rag Mama Rag. They tried playing it straightforward and normal at first. You know, they did a couple takes the the normal way. But it was like just okay. It didn't capture the magic, the spirit that they were looking for. So they rotated. Everyone switched instruments. Levon Helm moves from the drums to the mandolin. Richard Manuel replaces him on drums instead of the piano. Rick Danko moves from the bass to the fiddle. Garth Hudson ditches the organ for an upright piano. And their producer, John Simon, even picked up the tuba. That's awesome. Yeah, so the song kind of has this unpolished feel to it. Maybe it's a little sloppy, like not super tight, not super exceptional instrumentally, like some of the stuff you hear on Across the Great Divide or some of these other songs. Like the instrumental level is different, and it's because they've all done this big rotation and they play the wrong things. I didn't really notice anything being like wrong or sloppy. I mean, other than the end when the piano just like kind of does whatever. Yeah, well, it just has a different energy to it, I think than their normal thing and i think that's because they have to focus so much more on what they're playing yeah it definitely has a different energy but i disagree that it's better than across the great divide and so do the people so uh that's two against one fair enough i guess i did get a little worried about this song really why it flirted with the too repetitive line whoa well in the first 30 seconds of the song they said rag mama rag four times and i was like okay Let's get a little something else going. But then they spread out the rest of the rags and we were fine. It's just the first 30 seconds. I was like, is this what the whole song's going to be? <laughs> I was just, I got a little worried. Yeah, fair, fair. It was still a popular song though. You know, this one charted at number 16 in the UK and actually it would be their highest charting single in the UK. In the US, it hit number 57. Sure. So in the UK, actually the people did speak and agreed with me. That it was better? If it was their highest charting single ever, you know. Yeah. But, I mean, what is the UK? No, there's a reason their tea got tossed in the harbor. Yeah. Well, what I was going to say is the band kind of agrees with you because it still wasn't their favorite song either. <laughs> they said it didn't have very much importance until we recorded it, but it showed something else we could do in a style that didn't exist. So really, this is just their attempt to push the envelope. A little, you know, Muppet style jug band tune. <laughs> It's how I think of Rag Mama Rag. Also, here on Spin It, the official voice of the people is the Spotify place. And, uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. That's what we always look to, to determine how popular a song is in today's world. And Across the Great Divide clearly is the winner there. Yeah, yeah. But both of them are drowned out by the night they drove Old Dixie down. Yeah, the night they drove Old Dixie down is a very different song in every regard. <laughs> From Rag Mama Rag. This is like a saga. This is like an epic tale. A historical look at this family. It's one of their most notable, most memorable songs. And actually, it's been on every single compilation that they've released since this album came out. The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down. I don't think the band's version actually charted. But Joan Baez did a cover in 1971 that hit number three on the Hot 100 chart. And... 
Allegedly, the band did not love that. After they performed it live for the final time during the last waltz, Levon Helm vowed that he was never going to play the song again. And the word on the street is that he said that because he hated the Joan Baez version so much. I see. He, he was so mad about it. Other covers include Johnny Cash, the Allman Brothers, John Denver, the Charlie Daniels Band, the Black Crows, Jerry Garcia, the Zac Brown Band, and more. I bet I've heard this song then before because it sounded familiar, but I was like, there's no way I've heard this version. Yeah, that would make sense. I didn't recognize it enough to like be like i've heard this version but maybe i've heard one of those other notable artists do it certainly possible it has found itself on the rolling stones 500 greatest songs of all time list at number 245 and the rock and roll hall of fame described it as one of their 500 songs that helped shape rock and roll so it's probably gotten around probably within your sphere of influence can we talk about the falsetto no Okay, then. No, we can. Yeah, I like it. It's so good. It's like, I didn't even notice it at first. Yeah, it's subtle. Like, on one list, and I don't know when it actually shows up, but I didn't notice it till about the 140 mark. It's there from the very first chorus. Yeah, at the 140 mark, all of a sudden it came shining through my, like, left headphone, and I was like, oh! (laughs) (laughs) It's beautiful. It's so well put together. Wild. And so well researched. Kinda. It's a Civil War song. It's about these characters living in the South during Union General George Stoneman's 1865 raids on Virginia. So they create a character, as usual. They make Virgil Kane, this poor white Southern man, lamenting all the destruction and the devastation that he's experienced from the war in the South. He's like the focal point of the song. And when they were writing the song, it took... Robbie Robertson, eight months for it. He had the music and he had the chords and he just played them over and over and over until inspiration struck. And when he was like, oh, I want to make a Civil War song, he and Levon Helm made all kinds of trips to the library in Woodstock, New York while they were living in Big Pink and they did all this research to make sure that the story they were telling was correct. Like, that's dedication. It is. It's really cool. And they really make you feel for this character a little bit. He's grappling with the loss of his friends and his family members in the war that he can't quite make sense of. You take what you need and you leave the rest, but they never should have taken the very best. Because when you take the very best and everyone goes and dies in a war, what what are you left with? Just nothing. I love The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down. It's maybe not like my go-to track from this album, just because it's like so much. It's so heavy. It's not my, my usual like feel-good rotation. But what a storytelling song. When you were a kid, did you ever ask your grandpa for advice? Connor. Pew, 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 pew. Oh, he's shooting laser guns. <laughs> it sounds like he's trying to fake snore. Uh, pew. Well, it was either that or really try to fake snore, and that was not going to be a soundbite I wanted you to have. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the next song is When You Awake. Oh, you're awake. Good. Well, let's talk about it. This kid gets advice from somebody named Ollie about how hard life can be, how much life can suck. He gets a little bullied. He gets called a fool like you do when you're a kid. So this kid, he goes crying back to his grandpa, very upset by what Ollie has told him. Grandpa says, eh, you're a strong, resilient kid. When you wake up tomorrow, you can forget about all the bad things. He says that you'll relieve the only soul that you were born with to grow old and never know. He says life's too short for persistent worry. You're aging too fast. So that's like the structure of when you awake. Ollie gets worried. Grandpa's wise, sage advice is like interspersed throughout the rest of the song. So we see the the speaker learning and taking his grandpa's advice to heart as he applies it to each new thing. Ollie tells him to stress him out or bring him down. Yeah. What'd you think? Eh. 
My least favorite of the four so far. I was going to say, if we're like on the roller coaster of this album, When You Awake is just like the part you have to get through to get to the next part. When You Awake is when you're still in the line. Wow, what was <laughs> the first three tracks? It's like you got off the roller coaster, got in line again to write it a second time. Oh, okay, okay. Wait, that's actually really funny because that pattern I think kind of holds true for the rest of the album in a, in a large part. So yeah, for the first three songs we're on the roller coaster. This one we're back in line, still excited to write again, right? Yeah. But yeah, just just there's we're waiting on when you awake. And then I think on Cripple Creek, we get back on the roller coaster. Leave on Helm did the vocals on Cripple Creek once again. It charted at number 25 in the US. And Robbie Robertson said, I had some ideas for Up on Cripple Creek when we were still based in Woodstock making music from Big Pink. Then after Woodstock, I went to Montreal and my daughter, Alexandra, was born. We'd been snowed in at Woodstock and in Montreal it was freezing, so we went to Hawaii as some kind of way to get warmth. And we began preparing for making our second album. I think it was really pieces of ideas coming during that traveling process that sparked the idea of a man who just drives these trucks across the whole country. And that is what Up on Cripple Creek is all about. A truck driver who's, you know, making his way from place to place to place. He also said, he said, we're not dealing with people at the top of the ladder. We're saying, what about the house out there in the middle of the field? What does this guy think? With that one light on upstairs, that truck parked out there, that's who I'm curious about. What's going on in there? And just following the story of this person, and he just drives the trucks across the whole country, and he knows these characters that he drops in on, on his travels. They said the song is just following him with a camera. So the speaker is a trucker who stops by for a fling with a woman from his past, Bessie. It's unclear if it's like an affair or just a trucker booty call of sorts, but that's what's happening. That's what's up on Cripple Creek. This one didn't do it for me. Really? It didn't? Why not? I don't know. It kind of had Rag Mama Rag vibes to it. Maybe that's why I like it. It certainly does. Yeah, it seems like we like different aspects of this album it may be well i mean i like all the aspects of this album but yes it does seem like well you know i like the best ones you like the second best ones so (laughs) okay cross the great divide versus rag mama rag the night they drove old dixie down versus up on cripple creek well i haven't passed an official judgment on that yet oh oh well which one do you like better the night they drove old dixie down oh well then welcome to the right side okay one thing i think you maybe could have been off put by on this song is this a little aggressive this is a really interesting factoid up on cripple creek is one of the first times anyone ever put a wah-wah pedal on a clavinet so that is the sound that you hear you just made those words up no i didn't it's real it's real that's the instrument that you hear the womp 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 that's a clavinet with a wah-wah pedal you know the clavinet it's what stevie wonder plays on superstition i see yeah and then the wah-wah pedal is what makes it go wow and so oh i know all about the wah-wah pedal yeah see right so that sound would go on to be very prominent like over the course of the decade but the band is one of the pioneers for that with this track wow yeah also, what do you think about this interesting, like, yodel kind of section in Cripple Creek? I do kind of love that a lot. I do enjoy a good yodel. That it was a shining moment for this song. Yeah, for this album, really. How often do we get yodels? It's true. Well, some, some. We've had some. Also, do you know the other old folk song, Cripple Creek? I looked long and hard to find versions of it. There's a Flattened Scruggs version that's obviously very banjo-laden, but pretty cool. But that's Cripple Creek. I think we're back on the roller coaster. Whispering Pines? Definitely back on the roller coaster by then. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, 
yeah, in terms of songs that I really like enjoy and like you can get behind on this album, Whispering Pines is on the roller coaster, even though it's a slow song and does not feel like you're riding a roller coaster. You know what I mean? I feel like the metaphor, we have to keep it separate here. Be very clear. Yeah. So this time on Whispering Pines, Robertson only wrote the lyrics. The melody came from Richard Manuel. It's all about loneliness and it's just so peaceful, so serene. Whispering pines in a quiet forest, a rising tide and a shining star, a foghorn signaling protection for people who are no longer physically with him, but are far out to metaphorical sea. You know, he's guiding them safely and just guiding them home. But in this peacefulness, there's also a kind of underlying emptiness, right? He sings, I'll wait until it all goes round with you in sight, the lost are found. And the organ on that part is so good. So it's like, it's like spiritual and transcendent. Whispering Pines is a song I think that does everything right. Ticks every box for a song like this that you could possibly want. Yeah, I I actually quite like Whispering Pines. It's beautiful. And here's a fun fact. When Manuel was writing the melody for the song, he did it on a piano that had one key out of tune. So when he went into the studio to record it, he had the whole piano tuned that same way. So it's very unique. (laughs) But only slightly. He said, can you just detune that one key? There you go. There you go. It's interesting because it's kind of a sad song on what's been a pretty rowdy album to this point. Like, just think about the range between Whispering Pines and, like, the Wawa Clavinet or an instrumental round robin on Rag Mama Rag. It's just striking that this band can do both of those things on one album and make it feel totally natural. Yeah. What are the odds that Whispering Pines is your playlist pick? Only one way to find out. Keep listening until the end of the episode. Okay. Yeah, Only that's the only way. Can't scrub ahead. Impossible. I mean, I can't. It's impossible for me. But that does it for the first side of the record. Gotta flip that album over. The second side continues for me a little bit. The roller coaster's winding down for the second trip. With Jemima Surrender, this one's sung by Helm. You know, they had so much fun with their instrumental rotation on Rag Mama Rag. You know what? They decided to do it a second time here on Jemima Surrender. Uh-huh. Drummer Helm plays the guitar. Manuel takes his place on the drums. So it's not nearly as extreme, but they do shuffle a small bit. Jemima Surrender is a song all about the ways that the speaker intends to woo Jemima and holy double entendre, Batman. It's a little randy out here if you start to dig. Critics call Jemima Surrender grinningly lascivious. Interesting. Yeah, gonna ride in my canoe? Come on. I'd lock the door, tear my shirt, and let my river... There's some weird... There's some weird ones here. There are some weird ones. There's a bird on my head and his mouth won't talk. He laughs like a goose but looks like a hawk. <laughs> what? Like, it's just this is all over the place. But yeah, it's a very promiscuous song. Interestingly enough, that caused a pretty strong response from contemporary feminists. In Chicago, a woman named Naomi Weistein heard the song and decided to add her own voice to the conversation. She was inspired to create the Chicago Women's Liberation Rock Band. During their four-year career, they put out all kinds of these empowering songs that aim to challenge sexist tropes in rock music. And it was a precursor to a bunch of similar future movements, including Riot Girl in the 90s, which we've talked about before. So I think it's just interesting that this song kind of started a movement that was a pushback against it. Yeah. But to listen to it, you'd never expect. Jemima Surrender kind of feels a little bit more like a rocker. I would put Jemima Surrender in the same kind of category as uh, maybe nothing that we've talked about yet, but Look Out Cleveland. Yeah, it's kind of different. Good different? Well, just different from anything we've come... Oh, good different? Eh. 
It's not making my top three, put it that way. Oh, well, there are 12 songs here. I like Jemima Surrender. I don't ever engage with it much. It is one that I kind of cruise through. And then we get to Rocking Chair. Rocking Chair for me is the song where we're once again waiting in line to ride the roller coaster again. That three-song roller coaster has dropped us off, and Rocking Chair is still anticipation, but we're waiting. It's an interesting song in terms of subject. It's about an old retired sea captain who's resigning himself to a life in his rocking chair that won't go nowhere. And uh, that's it, really. He's pushing 73. He's lived a good full life. Time to take it easy in old Virginia with his pals and his family. Rocking Chair has kind of got this mournfulness to it. Like, yeah, he's retired and he's relaxing, but it just feels like there's this longing. Like, he wishes he didn't have to almost. Yeah. I did. This one's intrigued me when it first started. Yeah. It does sound different with, like, what almost like an accordion kind of harmonica. The instruments at the beginning I really like. I like Rocking Chair. Yeah? Yeah. Also, though, I do have to point out, I mean, the whole thing is he talks about he's not going anywhere. He's in his rocking chair that won't go nowhere. The whole point of a rocking chair is that it's a chair that goes somewhere, that moves. It's not. I mean, what have you done? I broke it. Yep. You can't like the song anymore. Unlistenable. But boy, we get back on that roller coaster quickly and whip up a storm with Lookout Cleveland. Honestly, I've probably said this or could say this about almost every track, but this is like one of my sleeper favorites from this record. I would never say it's my favorite, but I like it a lot. Lookout Cleveland, sung by Danko. The style of music at the beginning is called a boogie woogie blues riff. In fact, the whole song is a little bit of a deviation from the country folk style that we've seen so far, and it leans a lot more heavily into the blues, which I think is kind of a nice change of pace. Have you ever been, what's the worst storm you've ever been in? I don't know if I've been in any that are memorable enough. Wow. I remember one time the remnants of like a hurricane or something, you know, the storm. It all turns out that storm by the time it hit Ohio. But yes, it like hit and the winds were whipping or whatever. And at that point in time, we had a boat that, that my dad owned for like fishing and stuff. And it was like parked out in the front yard and he was up in it and the wind was like rocking it. <laughs> and we were like, it was like a ride. <laughs> we were up in it. That's awesome. You kind of just combined this song in the last one. Yeah. Your dad was an old sailor in a rocking chair when the storm blew through. That was, all right, you realize, you know, life imitates art. It's true. Look out Cleveland. A storm is coming through. Odds are, sadly, that this doesn't refer to Cleveland, Ohio, which is, you know, a significant city to rock and roll as a genre, and one that frequently does get big storms on account of the lake effect. Yeah. This is more probably a reference to Cleveland, Texas, since they refer to Houston. You know, that's that's pretty much the likely suspect way down south. Not to mention, there's a pretty devastating hurricane that hit Galveston in 1900 that kind of fits the description of the, the song saying it blew the town away. The Galveston hurricane was actually the deadliest natural disaster in U.S. history. 8,000 fatalities, give or take. More than 7,000 buildings were destroyed. So my leading theory, although I don't know if they've actually confirmed it, but my theory is it's about that storm. Nah, it's about Cleveland, Ohio. Has to be. Cleveland, Ohio, surely about some snow on the lake. Gotta be. Gotta be. No other way. I mean, they are from Canada, so they are closer to Cleveland than Cleveland. But look out. Up next is Jawbone, though. We've got another bit of a redneck jug band type rocker that I think I've always underappreciated, really. I think just in general, the Jawbone is an underrated bone. I mean, think about how much it does for you. I mean, you use it all the time. Yeah, don't get any flashy publicity like the funny bone or the kneecap. Yeah, you're right. The flashy publicity of the kneecap far surpasses that of the Jawbone. Well, like, that's, like, shown a lot. Like, doctors hit it to make your leg do funny kicks. <laughs> 
Yes, yes, they do. Hit it with this comically small hammer. Uh, yeah, but I'm glad the hammer's comically small. I don't want a bigger one. Yeah, I wonder what my reflexes would be right if we pulled out the sledgehammer. You wouldn't reflect much. <laughs> like, imagine how powerful that kick would be. Sometimes I kick before the hammer hits me, so they think my reflexes are really good. Oh, well, they are good if you're kicking before it hits you. Yeah. Like, how do we show that on his charts? Negatives? Yeah. Anyway, like all those other bones, I did underappreciate Jawbone the song. <laughs> But I listened to it for this, and I was like, oh, there's a lot of complexity here. This song is so musically advanced. It flows so well between really diverse styles and time signatures that you just never expect to look at it. I read a review that somebody called this front porch prog, and that's exactly what it is. A lot of the song exists in 6-4 time, and then out of the verses into the chorus, we hit 4-4, and on top of that, we speed up and slow down very freely. And so I think it keeps Jawbone very engaging, but also very overlookable on this record. I think what makes this a cool song also has the unintended consequence of making this a song that nobody gets into. Because it's not one you could put on and jam to. It's not super contemplative. You know, the lyrics are kind of light, but it's insanely impressive. Lyrically, it's about a clinical thief, a, a kleptomaniac. I'm a thief and I dig it. And I love that riff. But that's Jawbone. Up next is Unfaithful Servant, another song that Robertson wrote in Hawaii. The vocals on this one were by Danko. He recorded the final version of the song on the very first take, but they did somewhere between 30 and 40 extra takes to try and get it right or do it better. How annoying. That is annoying. I would have been so mad. (laughs) But hey, anyway, in short, you know, in this song, the servant has been unfaithful. Shocker. They're kicking him out of the house and honestly feeling no regret over it whatsoever. We won't be complaining because you took advantage of her caring nature and the good things she provided to you while you lived and worked here. That's really all there is to it. I like this, these slower songs. I can tell. That's kind of your thing all the time, though. I wonder how the record balances for you. If you did like the slow songs, but you didn't like the jug band types or the blues rockers, like, wonder where that's going to score. I'm so curious. Something like Across the Great Divide seems to have really stuck with you. And Whispering Pines and maybe The Unfaithful Servant, Night They Drove Old Dixie Down. But then stuff like Jawbone, <laughs> right? Rag Mama Rag, Cripple Creek, stuff that left you. I wonder how bad that hurts it for you. Only one way to find out. Keep listening. Yeah, keep going. <laughs> yep. Robbie Robertson described this song as playing a game when he was writing it because he says to write a song about this kind of thing isn't really a very righteous thing to do because there should be no differences between people. But they're, you know, deliberately kind of throwing shade to modernize the terms. Throwing shade at this unfaithful servant who's, you know, fictional, but still. And I really do love the last verse in this song. Pretty great lyrics. Goodbye to that country home. So long, lady, I've known. Farewell to my other side. I'd best just take it in stride. The memories will linger on, but the good old days, they're all gone. Lonesome servant, can't you see? We're still one and the same, just you and me. That's great. Top-notch lyrics. I love Robbie Robertson as a lyricist and songwriter. And that brings us to the last track on the album, and once again, not a small part of the reason I picked this episode for Thanksgiving. (laughs) King Harvest has surely come. It's here. Happy Thanksgiving. King Harvest is here. Happy Thanksgiving. It's Thanksgiving now. The speaker in this song is a farmer going through a tough time. There's been a drought, and his crops are all dead. His barn burned and caught on fire. It's just been a really bad time. He's just been going through it. And then he gets approached by a union rep, and he buys in 100% 
president, I'm a union man all the way, time to go on strike. Particularly relevant with all the strike talk that's been happening in America over the last couple of months. Though, of course, that's not farmers, that's like writers and actors. But still, unions are still very much a relevant topic some 50 years later. So it's a bit of a Depression era, Dust Bowl kind of anthem, very Steinbecky. I like King Harvest to surely come. Tell me it doesn't hook you right away. Corn in the fields. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's instantly very good. And this is, uh, this one's not a roller coaster or a waiting in line song. I think this is just us, you know, we've had a great day at the park and now we're headed for the gates, I suppose. Yeah, it's closing time. Closing time. And we've taken the roller coaster for our final spin. The theme park of music never closes. We're just moving on to the next ride. Yeah, which we will have to wait for next week to do. But first, we got final spin. We can still hang out in the final spin cafe. Yeah, we're, we're you know, recovering from... From three consecutive roller coaster rides. Exactly. Tell me what you think. Give me your score. Scores? I've said a lot, so I'm just going to tell you the scores. Music is a 90 from me. Lots of great stuff here. Very memorable melodies and lots of fun. Lyrically, 83. Some really intriguing characters. Excellent storytelling. Fun metaphors. A little spicy double entendre. It's kind of got it all. Instruments and production. The instruments are incredible. No hate there whatsoever. I love the instrumentation. And the rotating thing they did is awesome. The production doesn't quite sound as clean as I want it to. You know, it feels a little muddy in some spots, which is fine. I don't think it really hinders my enjoyment in the album, but I'm giving it a 77. Overall vibe, just a blast. 84. I like it a lot. Very solid, robust, influential, fun record, which gives it a final score of 86.4 and lands it at number 228, just above Santana's Abraxas from episode 101. It's above that by one-tenth of a point, and it's the same score that I gave ella fitzgerald actually but this one loses in a tiebreaker oh no yep the queen of jazz has king harvest beat dang so that's what's up with me what's up with you for me this album surprised me how so going into it a band called the band and seeing what genre was i was like yeah this is probably gonna be another head in the heart style you know just kind of it's okay but nothing standout ish Oh, man. Sort of album is kind of what I was thinking. Yeah. And then it was much worse. No kidding. Whoa. <laughs> I was going to say, you saying that makes me think we maybe need to get more Americana exposure. I think we do. If the the head and the heart right now is like your sole frame of reference. Uh, I don't know. Just Americana is not really a genre I venture into on my own a lot. Sure. Which is funny because I think there's a lot of stuff in there that you seem to like. Outside of like country, I mean, not that country is really Americana, but it can't, it's very patriotic, but, uh, <laughs> well, okay. Yeah. And again, this is Canadian. Canadian. Yeah. We're not going back. Not, not going, going back. back. <laughs> so, you know, I think the only thing I can really take away from this is that, uh, this one gets seven open minds, seven open minds. Okay. Cause I need to learn to keep an open mind going into these because sometimes I'll be surprised. Yeah, you do. Good. That's a good unit. It turned into a good running joke, I guess. So talk to me more about seven. How do we end up there? Because that is where you put the head and the heart as well. Head and the heart was a six, I believe. Oh, I keep thinking that because it was episode seven. It's not the first time I've done it. It's not. I thought about giving it an eight, but then as we were talking about it, there were several songs that I was just like, no, this belongs in the sevens. Okay. It's going in a spot that I think would make you kind of 
Shiver. Uh-oh. It's going right below Olivia Rodrigo's Sour, the second seven on my list. I was like, why would that make me shiver? That's a very high seven. And then I was like, oh, yeah, but it is below Olivia Rodrigo. And then I was like, ooh, I don't know how I feel about that. And it is above Dark Side of the Moon. <laughs> well, I mean, hey, at this point, that doesn't... I'm numb to that. Oh, okay. But below Olivia Rodrigo is interesting because it's very different. Yeah. Olivia Rodrigo's been hanging out at the top of the sevens since episode 54. She's been there a long time. No seven has dethroned her. Double, right? Her episode number. You're right. She's more than doubled. Think about how many times she's doubled. Yeah. Nothing's been able to dethrone her yet. Well, in the sevens, to be clear. <laughs> Nothing has been able to dethrone her with a seven. Plenty of stuff has been eight and nine. <laughs> yeah. Well, and also I'm looking at the sixes. Permanent Vacation, episode six, got a score of six. That's one you can use the episode number to remember the score, unlike Head in the Heart. You're right. <laughs> it's crazy. I gave Aerosmith and Head in the Heart, episode six and seven, the same score. And look how far apart they've fallen over the course of the episodes. Yeah, you've fit a lot in between them. That's crazy. That's what I like about this spreadsheet. You can check out this spreadsheet on our website www.spinapod.com it's true look at you doing all three w's yeah i did all three w's but before we get too far into plugging ourselves top three. Oh yeah you did start with your score yeah we'll kind of add the nice transition into it with keeping an open mind so had to had to do it mm, yep uh my top three in album order across the great divide the night they drove old dixie down i don't know if mine was a part of that or not <laughs> it was <laughs> <laughs> okay okay Good. I purposely didn't repeat it because I knew you'd be like, oh. <laughs> Whispering Pines. Honorable mention, Rockin' Chair. And Rag Mama Rag. Oh, no, that's all four. Nope. <laughs> what if I just said another one, though, and made you lose a pick? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's a good top three list. Unsurprising from you. And my playlist pick, also very unsurprising. The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down. Try again. Strike one. Oh, really? Is it Across the Great Divide? Across the Great, great Divide. divide. <laughs> That's what I want on the playlist. Cool. That really surprises me. It's such a catchy song. It is a catchy song. And we started the album off with it. Like, it was right there. Yep. Wasn't even Across the Divide. <laughs> You're right. Wow, what do I want to do? What do you want to do? I'm kind of steering away from most of the slow songs. Wow. Except The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down. Okay, that is the most popular song on the album. Uh, I think that'd be a good pick. It is. It's a really great example of their lyrics and their storytelling. Yeah, yeah. Their characters are very fleshed out. Their research is good. And if, which we'll have to get to in a second, if this is a concept album of the South. Yeah, we must say we're about to get there. No song makes that more clear than The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down. So if that's going to be your paradigm, I think that has to be on the playlist. So I'll take it. All right. Cross the Great Divide and The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down. And the bells were ringing. So speaking of the concept album, there's a proclamation that needs made yeah you must proclaim it we got to hear from the concept king is this a concept album i'm doing the thumbs up thumbs down thing i got my thumb in the middle well i can't see your thumb and neither can anyone listening to this oh that's a good point uh i'll say it as i do it okay <laughs> why not just whatever thumbs up oh boy i don't think it's the strongest concept album we've had no, because it doesn't focus around a character or a singular thing. But I think 
if you know we're looking at the strongest concept album we've had which is probably one that i've created so hard to pick whatever and the weakest one yeah dark side of the moon okay that's the camp you can't call that the hold on you can't call that the weakest concept you can say musically it wasn't as good as you wanted it to be but you can't call that a weak concept (laughs) i think i did in the episode and i stand by it i stand by whatever i said back in episode whatever that was it's better than the concept you tried to force on brooks and dunn Mm, i don't know about that okay whatever this is mainly you said you were numb to it so i had to relight the fire yeah i could feel it coming back <laughs> you know this is on the positive half so i'll give it a i'll give it a thumbs up to all those band fans i think this is a concept album i say feel validated feel validated your king is spoken king harvest <laughs> king harvest concept i am king harvest i have surely come yep 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 oh that's fantastic are we missing anything sometimes we forget sometimes we forget we've only been doing this for 120 some episodes yes true but i think we got it all i think we did i think we've got our playlist picks you got your top threes you said it was a concept album we gotta finish plugging things plugging things boop what'd you plug just plugged in my phone oh i plugged my bathtub don't do that it's gonna overflow or are you gonna take a nice bath when we get done here yeah soak in my kingliness <laughs> Okay, great. As for the other plugs, you can find us on the websites. Yeah. X at Spinapod and Instagram at Spinapod Official, also on YouTube, Twitch, all the other places, mostly Spinapod. Go check out all the live streams, blooper reels, spin it on the roads. Heck yeah. You know where you can find all that? Wait, I'll make you answer it like it's Dora the Explorer. Hey, where can you find all that? That's right. Spinitpod.com. Good answer. That's where it is. Now, can you count the W's in our website? Three. It's three. (laughs) Great job. The answer is three. (laughs) Also, be sure to like, you know, rate, five stars, subscribe. That stuff all helps. Tell a friend. Tell a friend. Word of mouth. Best way to get a podcast to grow is by word of mouth. That's true. Tell a friend who... Tell a friend who needs to keep an open mind, all right? Yeah, tell your closed-minded friends about this episode. <laughs> They'll be like, I don't want to, and tough, they've got a closed mind. You just walk in and say, listen, I've got a podcast for you, but I need you to keep an open mind. That's a great segue, I suppose. But you can find us here again next week with another exciting album and episode. Next week's gonna rock. I'm excited. We're going on another ride at the music theme park. Yeah, we are. I hope this is one of the ones that spins really fast. It'll shake you all night long. But stay tuned. And until next time, keep Keep spinning. spinning. Got some Thanksgiving jokes for you. Oh, you do? Okay, hit me. What do you call a rude gobbler? Rude gobbler, a jerky turkey. It's a jerky turkey. Good job. I can't believe you got that. <laughs> I can't believe that was the joke. That was stupid. Oh, what do you do when you lose the turkey recipe card? Find it. You wing it. Ah, uh, okay. What is a turkey's favorite kind of dessert? Peach gobbler. Yeah, it's any type of fruit gobbler. But yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. When should you expect to eat chick? Oh, oh, never mind. That's a bad one. Oh, yeah. What is it? <laughs> See, it's really, it just says when should you expect to eat chicken in November, and it says it on Thanksgiving. That one's really bad. That one's horrible. I didn't proof that one. No, that one's disgusting. Hey, did you hear about the baker who created a new pumpkin pie recipe for Thanksgiving? No, I didn't. What happened to him? They are a real pioneer. Oh, that was actually better than I thought. What do sweet potatoes put on after the Thanksgiving meal is over? A couple pounds. They're yammies. Jeez. <laughs> I'm going to cut you off right there. These are terrible. <laughs>